Now, it's time for Modern Money Donuts with Stephen Hale and Gabrielle Bond. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Modern Money Donuts, a show about modern monetary theory and ecological economics. I'm here with my co-host Stephen Hale in the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group office, where I am an organiser and I'm also a director of Modern Money Lab with Stephen and Phil. And Phil's joining us today. Stephen, would you like to introduce yourself first? Well, um, yes, as Gabby just said, I'm Stephen. It's lovely to see you again. I'm a adjunct associate professor at uh, Torrens University in Adelaide. And today we are joined by uh, an adjunct full professor at Torrens University in Adelaide, our good friend and colleague, uh, Phil Lorne. Uh, I um, can say, I think without contradiction, that Phil is Australia's leading ecological economist. Also, given the name of our show, the leading ecological economist within the modern monetary theory. Um, I won't say movement, uh, within a group of economists who would describe themselves as modern monetary theorists. Anyway, it's great to see Phil. How are you today, Philip? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, now it's good to have you back. Abs absolutely. Now, Phil and Gabby and I are working this year, as some of you already know, on a set of postgraduate courses, online postgraduate courses with Torrens University, um, leading to a master's degree in what we're calling the economics of sustainability, but there's also a graduate certificate and graduate diploma, and I hope we're going to have some doctoral students as well. Mm. These qualifications we maintain are different to anything available, not only in Australia, but anywhere in the world at the moment, because they combine modern monetary theory, which most people listening to this will have a pretty good grasp of, I think, with an ecological perspective or with ecological um, economics. Hmm. You can study ecological economics in some universities uh, around the world. We don't claim to be the only place where you can do that. Yep. You can do degrees in which are, have a large element of MMT in, in, in a few um, universities around the world, although none, I think, at the moment in Australia. But I don't think there's anywhere where you can combine both a realistic description and understanding of how the monetary system works with something which is even more important than that, which is a realistic understanding of the relationship between human economic activity and the natural environment on which we depend and of which we are a part. So you might say ecological economics is about what we need to do, and modern monetary theory is how we go about doing that. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Thanks very much, <laughs> Gabby. And what well, actually, you said that. Did I'm I? just quoting All right. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> what we wanted to do um, with Phil, since we're lucky enough to have Phil with us today, is ask him something about the subjects that he's designing within those qualifications. And I think you're going to start off with the foundation subject, Phil. Yeah, that's right. So. I mean, in part, you've stolen a bit of my thunder by, uh, by the introduction. Well, you, you did tell me to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess what Stephen and I are attempting to do is, well, the whole purpose of 
studying any sort of course, you, uh, postgraduate qualification or what have you, uh, I guess it might be just for personal interest, but for a lot of people, it will, uh, people will be doing it to enable them to make decisions, uh, whether that be uh, as individuals, whether that be as uh, managers of a private organisation or they're a public or civil servant or if they have political ambitions, they, they want to make decisions, I would assume, uh, that uh, will not only be equitable but will allow all individuals, whether they're currently alive or they're people in the future, uh, can thrive within... Mm ecological constraints, planetary boundaries. Uh, and in order to do that, um, you need to know lots of things. Uh, the economy is not the only thing, but you need to know something about uh, the economy, how it functions, how it operates, its institutional setting. So uh, whereas mainstream economists tend to look upon institutions as constraints, hmm. uh, in fact, in many cases, they're enabling. They, they're, they're the, the yeah, um, yeah. foundation that allows economies to uh, provide uh, or pro the, the goods and services and, and, and so forth, which allow people uh, to thrive. Uh, and you need to know and understand the connection between the economy and the natural environment. Um, and it's Absolutely. not just the connection. It's, it's aspects about what I would call the real segment of the economy. So we can really divide... Uh, the economy out between what you might call the real segment and then there's the financial slash monetary segment. They are distinct um, when we're talking about the real economy and I guess uh, some of the subjects that I teach later on in the, the program, like ecological economics, tends to look more at the real economy. Yeah. Um, some of the stuff that uh, Stephen teaches is more to do with the financial uh, and monetary side of the economy. Um, I'm, unlike a lot of people, I, I in fact think that uh, by and large, uh, the real segment of the economy is a relatively stable system. Uh, it's subject to a lot of destabilising forces. And one of those just happens to be the other side of the economy. That's the financial monetary system if it's not managed uh, in an appropriate way. So yeah. uh, what I'll be doing in the foundation subject is just outlining some of the basic principles um that you need to know uh that you would not otherwise learn if you were doing a mainstream uh degree or you could learn some of them if you were doing a modern monetary theory related degree or postgraduate course or perhaps an ecological economics uh degree or postgraduate course but uh if you were doing one or the other you're not likely to learn some of the other <laughs> so uh We'll be, uh, and I'll be uh, looking at uh, some of those basic principles, which will form the foundation for the other subjects that we move on to as we go through the program, depending on what level uh, of the program that you um, enrolled into, whether it be the graduate certificate, the graduate diploma or the masters. And you, you mentioned uh, ecological economics, Phil, and that's, there is a subject called ecological economics, yes. although you'll be talking about it a little bit in the foundation subject too. What is ecological economics anyway? <laughs> it's a good question. I'm an ecological economist. I, it, it's been difficult to, to teach ecological economics 
uh, in a university because you're subject to all sorts of constraints, especially if you're teaching within an economics department. But and it's not, believe it or not, it's still not an easy question to answer in a short space of time. Uh, ecological economics starts from the basis that the economy is a subsystem of the natural environment. In fact, really, it's I a subsystem. It's ridiculous that we don't already start with that. Like that this it is, is ridiculous uh, because I think if you say to a five-year-old child that the economy is sort of part of a much larger thing called the environment, if they can, perhaps not a five-year-old, a ten-year-old, most, most people can understand that. But uh, for some reason, uh, as you, depending on, on, on your, you know, what, what you learn or whatever, your, your level of education, not so much level of education, in fact, it's not always the level of education. Uh, um, yes, people can, perhaps the word brainwash is not yeah, the appropriate yeah. I don't think that's term, true. But, uh, yeah, in a lot of cases, people are taught principles that uh, Stephen and I would consider to be mythical. <laughs> They're unscientific. Uh, and they leave people to think that the economy is something independent of the natural environment, that the environment is somewhere over there. So anything that we do within the economy that impacts upon the natural environment is, is something called an externality. So standard environmental economics, there is a difference between environmental economics and ecological economics. Standard environmental economics considers all costs imposed by the economy on on the environment as externalities. You just have to tweak something within the economy. Yeah. And, but I mean, ecological economics, sorry. Yep. I'm sorry, yes, just going to explain that a bit more to people. If, if, uh, if when talking about tweaking something. Well, they, in some cases, it's just about getting the prices right for resources. Uh, so it sees ecological about. problems as being simply a management issue or uh, a misallocation of the resources that are being used. Whereas ecological economics uh, argues that because the economy is a subsystem of the natural environment, then it's the scale at which we use resources, which is also at fault. So you can manage resources, natural resources that we use, allocate them in the best possible way, but that doesn't prevent the economy uh, growing beyond what can be ecologically sustained. So yeah. one famous, uh, now retired ecological economist, Herman Daly, uh, considers this, um, this difference or disparity between environmental and ecological economics as equivalent to a plimsoll line on a ship. So most mm -hmm. cargo ships will have a line, a plimsoll line. Yeah. Uh, and if the water goes above that line, that means danger. You know, there's yeah. a danger that the ship, well, you can, you can load a ship uh, inefficiently, I, I guess you could, uh, when it's in the port and uh, the water can reach the Plimsoll line too early. So, yes, an uh, inefficient allocation of the, the cargo can mean that you don't get the optimum level of cargo on the ship. But even if you optimally allocate cargo on a ship, there comes a point where if you put too much cargo on the ship, it doesn't matter how well you efficiently allocate the cargo uh, yeah. on the ship. The ship will sink. Yeah, <laughs> there's, yeah. there's a limit to what the uh, ship can uh, accommodate. Yeah. That's if, a great metaphor. If yeah. you just joined us, by the way, there was an issue with the YouTube link at the beginning. So 
Uh, although uh, it'll be edited later on, so the whole show will go up on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube Live, you've only just joined us. So I ought to say we're talking to uh, Professor Phil Lorne from Torrens University about the postgraduate courses in uh, um, MMT and ecological economics, which he and I and Gabrielle and others are putting together at, at, at uh, Torrens University this year and that we'll launch later on in the year. Phil is Australia's leading ecological economist and Phil has just been talking to us about uh, the foundation subject in that course and also uh, about ecological economics and the difference between uh, environmental economics and ecological economics. If you've missed that part, then when you see the recording later on, you'll see that yeah. just prior yeah. to what I'm saying at the moment. Phil, um, one of the things that I learned from uh, you chatting to Herman Daly uh, when we recorded a conversation with him uh, uh, a couple of years ago mm. um, was uh, his three principles for sustainability. Um, I was going to ask that too. Well, <laughs> Could you, you remind us the three principles? Because I think this is something yeah. that people should know, economists and non-economists. It's so mm. important. It is important. Uh, uh, and, and there are three principles that I will outline in the foundation subject but you look at in more detail uh in the ecological economic subject but and they're quite basic i mean there's a lot more and it's a lot more complicated than just the three principles but the, the three principles are, are are three critical principles and they're fairly they ought to be fairly easy to adhere to and the first one is that uh of course when we're talking about economic activity, we have resources entering the economy. The resources are transformed into final goods and services. They are either consumed or depreciate and they become waste. So sustainability is about making sure that the rate at which you use resources and the waste that you generate is within the regenerative and waste assimilative capacity of the natural environment. So there's three principles that emerge from three that understanding. Yep. And they are the first one in relation to renewable resources, and that is you should uh, ensure that uh, when you extract renewable resources, you extract them at a rate that is no greater than the capacity of the natural environment to regenerate renewable resources. Yeah. So, so don't, don't catch all the fish in the sea. Yeah. Yes, so uh, you extract uh, or harvest fish from the sea at a rate no faster than the uh, than a, um, a population of a fish population, fish, fish stock can, can uh, regenerate. And the same yeah. thing with a forest. Uh, if you're going to extract timber from a forest, you make sure that you extract timber at a rate no greater than the, the forest can regenerate. And if you can do that, then you can have timber and you can have fish forever. But of course, if you exceed that, then you start eating into the stock, which reduces the capacity of that stock to, to provide a flow of fish or timber. And ultimately, uh, you deplete the stock. And so even renewable resources are exhaustible. And so I guess this is something that, um, you know, uh, human beings have been um, e existing within that that kind of with that knowledge for tens of thousands yeah. of years, and it's only recently that we've kind of become too greedy, I suppose, to actually stick to it. Well, yes, so it was to do with scale, really. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so again, it's about so for indigenous cultures, you know, what I've just said is entirely logical, and yeah. you know, that have to be repeated to them. Uh, well, one of the reasons why people forget the, some of these principles, I'll, I'll get on to the other two soon, is that, of course, uh, most people live in cities now. The, the world is becoming increasingly urbanised and 
uh, don't realise that virtually everything that they enjoy or consume is being sourced from outside the city. Uh, and so you lose touch with basic ecological principles and understanding. So, you know, you hear uh, stories of children thinking that uh, milk uh, comes from bottles. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And when they're told that it comes from a cow, they're shocked and horrified and so forth. Um, but the second principle, of course, of the resources we use, some are renewable, some are non-renewable. And if you mm. think about it, uh, by the fact that a non-renewable resource can't renew itself, it can't, in fact, be used on a sustainable basis. You know, as you yeah. use it, uh, it's naturally exhausted. Although you can, if we're talking about material resources, we can reconcentrate them to some extent through recycling mm. processes, but there's a limit yes. to what we can do there. And, and that requires the use of more energy. But there is a way around it to some extent. It requires, if you're going to use non-renewable resources, to use them at a rate uh, no greater than you can create a renewable resource substitute. So if you're yes. mining the resource, then as you mine the resource, you use some of the proceeds from mining to build up a renewable or to cultivate a renewable resource substitute so that once the non-renewable resource is exhausted, you have a renewable resource and being renewable, it can generate a flow of uh, renewable resources equivalent to the rate at which you extracted the non-renewable non resource uh, during the extraction yep. process. So they're the two main laws in relation to the use of resources in relation to waste and, and uh, a lot of, you know, if we, if we, if we go back 50 years uh, with the Club of Rome report, uh, the limits to growth, 1972, a lot of mm -hmm. the uh, main concerns were in relation to the resource side and they are still important because as you know we're depleting a lot of our resources in particular there's a lot of deforestation around the world but a lot of our pressing environmental issues at particularly the global level are on the waste side as we know with climate change so yeah. the third principle is to ensure that you don't don't generate waste faster than the natural environment can safely absorb and assimilate those wastes. So the natural environment does have a capacity to absorb wastes, uh, but it's limited. Uh, and we, so, it, yeah, go on, sorry. Um, yeah, so you, um, yeah. there, was a, there was a lecture yesterday online in Australia from climate, climate scientist, Will Steffen, and he was yeah. talking about uh, novel entities, which is this issue of pollution. and. Uh, yeah. things being kind of dumped into the environment that we yeah. don't know anything mm. about what effects, wow. what long-term effects that those chemicals are having. Yes, well, so it, you, you could even add a fourth principle there because in in those cases, we're, you're not even talking about the quantity, you're talking about the nature of the waste, so just a small mm. quantity in itself is harmful yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so forth. So, uh, so, yeah, they're the three basic principles. Now, if you were studying in your sort of standard environmental economics, which is very much the mainstream sort of approach, uh, you would be taught that as long as you get the price of resources and waste right, then you'll uh, adhere to those three principles. But yeah. ecological economists say whilst getting the price of resources is important, it, it's only important in terms of making sure that those resources that you do use are used in the best possible way, but it doesn't, in fact, control or limit the rate at which you use resources and generate waste within the regenerative and waste assimilative capacity of the natural environment. So mm. ecological economists talk about the need for caps 
for quantitative restrictions on the rate at which we use resources, then you might apply sort of some sort of market principle to put an appropriate price on the resource so that those resources that you are extracting on a sustainable basis are used in their best possible way. But using them, using them in their best possible way doesn't uh, mean that you uh, satisfy those or adhere to those three sustainability precepts. So you have to yeah. go beyond that. And yeah. that's what you learn in ecological economics that you don't learn in environmental economics. Mm. Great, great summary. So yes, um, Stephen, do you want to just talk about, uh, we should quickly mention our website. If people are interested in uh, joining us on this journey as students and participants in these courses, you can find out more about it. Go to www.modernmoneylab, all one word, .org.au and right at the top of the page there is a little um, uh, link where you can put in an expression of interest. It will take you less than a minute and also a brochure you can download to find out more about what we're planning. Thanks very much Gabby but um, just to return to those uh, sustainability principles that made while Phil was talking it made me think of course the third one uh, is by no means uh, the only uh, uh, um, important example of this, but uh, the one that comes to mind to everybody is carbon dioxide emissions mm -hmm. and emissions of other greenhouse gases. But the second one is kind of linked to it because people sometimes talk as though it's going to be straightforward to mm -hmm. electrify everything and then generate uh, immense amounts of renewable energy and uh, just substitute away um, from uh, that constraint. But you come up against the second constraint sometimes there, because, for example, mm. if we're talking about uh, the use of uh, renewables and batteries, then people start talking about cobalt, and it involves the mining of a great deal of cobalt and other minerals and metals mm. in order to shift rapidly to renewables as we need to do. Mm. But then there's a limited stock of cobalt yes. that's available, and some of the places where cobalt is available, you're going to do a great deal of ecological damage right. and uh, damage biodiversity by digging up all the cobalt. Mm. So all these issues are related to each other. And whereas Phil was saying in environmental economics, it's very much seen as you just get the prices right and substitution happens. You have more of good things and less of the harmful things and you can just continue as before. Um, in ecological economics, um, uh, the uh, amongst the other things that uh, um, people like Phil talk about is that uh, you can't just substitute between one mm. and another and go on as mm. before. There, yeah. there is a that it, um, the so-called decoupling mm. of resource resource use and the emission of wastes from economic activity, if you want to use that word at all, is limited so that there's always going to be a limit to the sustainable scale of mm. economic activity, although that limit may change over time. And that leads us nicely into another subject that we could ask Phil about briefly, which is sustainable development indicators. And I think, oh, he's, yes. yeah. I think he's going to stress that sustainability and, uh, uh, and development are not the same thing, but I don't know. Uh, let's see what he's got to say about the subject. Yes, well, uh, so I think uh, 
as much as the sustainable development concept has been corrupted to some extent, uh, sustainable development means lots of things to different people. If we just split the, the term up to sustainability and, and development, well, sustainability just really means being able to maintain a system in a form that can generate outcomes that serve our needs and purposes over a prolonged period of time, however long that period ought to be. It, it, obviously, it can't be forever, um, but uh, because, you know, as we know, the, the sun's going to consume the earth one day, but that, that's irrelevant. <laughs> um, from, uh, our point, from our yeah. point of view, yeah. it can be virtually forever. Yes. Mm. Uh, so, but it's necessary to uh, distinguish between sustainable and development. And, and by the way, ecological, again, in terms of development, for most people, development just means more and more goods and services. So a lot of people equate growing GDP with development, but ecological economists argue that development is a qualitative term, not a quantitative term. And if you just think of yourself as a, as a person, uh, we all grow until we reach, you know, late teens, maybe 20 years of age. Uh, we don't stop developing as human beings just because we stop growing. Uh, yeah. So it's possible to develop through qualitative improvement over time. You don't have to grow things for to, to achieve development. Um, and of course, yeah. that process of develop needs to be sustainable. So you, you um, need to uh, distinguish between the two uh, concepts, sustainability and development. Uh, which, of course, means that you need separate indicators of sustainability and development. Mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, we've just talked about the three sustainability principles or precepts. So uh, you would have a lot of indicators, sustainability indicators uh, designed around measuring and quantifying uh, and in some cases qualifying if we're talking about toxic pollution where the quantity is not so much what's important. It's, it's the yeah. nature of the pollution. Uh, to uh, measure sustainability. Uh, on the development side, that becomes a little bit more difficult because, um, as I said before, a lot of people equate uh, more and more stuff with development. But of course, if development is a qualitative thing, uh, more stuff can be um, part of the development process, particularly if you're a member of a, a very impoverished country. Um, part of the development process is for a period of time an increase in the stuff that you have available um, uh, within society and, and, and society provides for, for individual people. But uh, once a certain point is reached, of course, uh, qualitative improvement, uh, um, improvement in the quality of life depends on other things or things other than the quantity of goods and services uh, that you're producing and consuming. So on the development side, you have a range of other indicators at the sort of at the micro level, uh, which aren't entirely related to the quantity of goods and services that a nation as a whole is producing and consuming. You start worrying about the distribution of goods and services yeah. uh, and the inability uh, to meet the needs, the appropriate needs of some people, of course, leads to all sorts of social problems. So you have mm -hmm. indicators that indicate the failure to meet the needs of uh, individuals within society. Uh, then we can also have sort of macro level indicators. Uh, and one of those is, that has been developed more recently is a thing called a genuine progress indicator. Yes. And uh, 
people would probably find this um, uh, quite extraordinary, really, that, uh, you know, here we are in the day and age where we can put people on, uh, the potential to put people on, on, on the moon or other planets, and yet we don't really have a macro indicator that measures and differentiates uh, the uh, between the benefits and the costs of what we do at the macroeconomic level. Yeah. Um, we've relied upon an indicator called gross domestic product, which just a, is really a monetary measure of the quantity of what we produce. Uh, but of course, that doesn't tell us if what we're producing is beneficial or costly. So uh, when GDP goes up, uh, it means more is being produced, but it might be that it's being produced for defensive and rehabilitative purposes because of yeah. what we've done in the past. Um, you know, yeah. in terms of emission of too many greenhouse gases, which is uh, leading to climate change and therefore a need to adapt and so forth to the uh, consequence of climate change. So, we'll be looking at indicators that that people won't be familiar with, but they'll be uh, the indicators that will be able to provide a better indication of whether a nation is achieving the sustainable development goal, which are yeah. in a form of This feeds into the show you did with us before, where, where we talked about the GPI yeah. in that yes. one in, in, a, in a lot of uh, detail. Well, sorry, myself. <laughs> no, 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 it's great. That, that, that's, that's great. I mean, the GPI, uh, which Phil is uh, one of the mm. pioneers of, mm. of course, it uh, mm. tries to uh, estimate the economic and the social and the ecological um, costs as well as benefits mm. of 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 economic activity and uh, I, I I think that's the that's the principal in, indicator of development uh, that Phil will be talking about in mm. in in the subject yeah. and I'm sure he'll also be talking amongst other things about the uh, ecological footprint that's right so that's an ecological indicator which uh, can be used to determine whether we're operating sustainably. So the GPI is more of a development indicator and the ecological footprint a sustainability indicator. So there's a need to have both, one without. So a rise in the GPI, if it's a genuine progress indicator, a lot of people fall in the trap of thinking, oh, that means we're operating sustainably. It's possible for the GPI to be rising, but the ecological footprint to exceed by capacity. Yeah. But of course, you can do things to try and operate sustainably and ignore uh, the needs of people as you transition from a non-renewable resource economy to a renewable resource economy, which could lead to the GPI falling. So you yeah. want to ensure that the ecological footprint is within biocapacity, so you're operating within ecological limits and you want the GPI to rise. And it's also possible for the GDP to be rising whilst the GPI is falling. And in fact, yeah. studies indicate that has been the case for a lot of countries. Yeah. I remember you gave the example of like if you if your roof is smashed by um, a storm event or a hurricane or your windows are broken, then the the uh, economic activity that ge generates to repair that is counted under the um, uh, GDP. GDP. But yeah. it's not. This is not a good thing. This is not something which yeah. we want to happen to people. Yeah. No, yeah. we don't. So, so GDP goes up. So, yeah, if you want to increase yeah. GDP, next time you're driving your car, just uh, yeah, just go off the side of the road, crash into a telegraph pole, write your car off, 
don't kill yourself, but you know, injure yourself. So you have to go to hospital, have some hospital treatment, and well, then you can go. But that won't make you better off because the resources that are being used to replace the car and to make or repair you, uh, mm -hmm. of course, aren't available for other beneficial users. So it's a cost. It's not a benefit. Yeah, yeah. And, and of this, is the, this is the problem with the way um, our decision makers, especially in Australia, are, uh, their view of things. It's just mm. completely backwards. No, not mm. just in Australia. Right? Not just in Australia, but mm. we, we're yeah, seeing it. Like, it's mm. it's unbearable to listen to the budget yeah. talk so the, that's going on at the moment. It's just oh. Mm. So the real output. But we have, uh, for those people who are overseas, uh, we have a town in uh, northern New South Wales which has been badly flooded, and, and it could be getting uh, experiencing flooding again today, called Lismore, yeah. and. Uh, if you could measure the so-called GDP, the, the the product of Lismore over the next month or two, it might in fact rise. <laughs> Simply doing all sorts of things to repair the damage of yeah. the flood, which, given the freak, the increased frequency and intensity of these floods, seems to be an indication of of climate change. Uh, well, yeah. of course, ask anyone on the street of Lismore whether or not yeah. they're better off, and clearly they're not. There's extraordinary mm. photos online. There's like I saw mm. a video with a petrol station that's completely underwater. You can just mm. see the roof of the petrol yeah. station. And there's a bridge where, where the water has come up 22 metres and mm. completely covered the bridge. And yeah. it's just horrific. And of course, what you hear from, uh, from people is that Australia has always been a land of fire and floods. But the thing is, the fires and the floods are becoming more intense and, and mm. more frequent. But yeah. I think we're going to have to come to a, a conclusion soon. So maybe I could just sort of sum up uh, a little bit. Uh, we didn't cover all the subjects that no. Bill is contributing towards the uh, the qualification. Uh, so it's going to involve uh, talking a lot about not just in the not just in subjects that are specifically about ecological economics, but it's going to involve talking really throughout about um, ecological constraints, but also about um, people as they really are. So there's going to be some mm. behavioural economics in there too yeah. and how people make decisions and what contributes to well-being, and about institutions as they really work and that's where mm. uh, monetary institutions and modern monetary theory will come in as well yes. and we'll talk about uh, the sort of issues that you talk about in other economics courses, although hopefully in a much more realistic way, including financial crisis that Phil started off this half now by pointing out that actually it's the financial system that often adds instability to the real system of the economy. They'll, they'll, uh, uh, Phil will be doing a microeconomic subject where the way that real businesses make mm. decisions um, will, will be discussed, drawing on. And, and also treating uh, one of the problems with, with mainstream microeconomics, main, mainstream microeconomics tends to analyse things as if you're studying the economics of small things mm -hmm. uh, when actual fact what you really ought to be doing when you're studying microeconomics is studying a, something that is uh, part of a larger whole which is of course is the larger economy so that always has to be borne in mind which of course is then part of a larger whole called society which is part of a larger whole called the natural environment, the ecosphere. So, uh, yeah, so you're studying micro as, as a study of 
parts of a larger system rather than just small things. Mm. Absolutely. And we'll also, uh, there'll even be a subject where we contrast the approaches we're taking to uh, the approaches that other economists take. Everything yes. from Marxist political economy to Austrian school economics on the on the far right and the neoclassical mainstream mm. as well. Mm. We'll talk about there. So that's what we're working on at the moment. Uh, I, I would like to say we had promised this week that we'd be talking to another friend and colleague of ours who's involved in this, Con Michalakis, who's the chief investment officer of Statewide Super, the one of the biggest financial institutions in, in South Australia. Um, we haven't been able to talk to Con uh, this week because he's in quarantine as a close contact of, uh, of people that have COVID at the moment. So I trust they're getting better very quickly and Con will be out of quarantine very quickly. We'll talk to him in a couple of weeks time. We were going to talk to Phil in a couple of weeks time. Phil is very kindly uh, 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 and a very short notice swapped around to talk to us again um, today. Uh, if you'd like to know more about the genuine progress indicator, there are lots of talks by Phil online mm. about that. But we also interviewed Phil about the GPI a couple of months ago on Modern Money Donuts. So mm -hmm. by all means, go back and, and watch us talking about that there. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add, Gabby? Um, I just wanted to just quickly uh, see if uh, Joe Firestone has written a, a quick question to Phil. He says, hi, Phil, do you know a book called The Multi-Capital Scorecard by Thomas and McElroy, published by Chelsea Green? No, I don't. So I'll, I'll look okay, that up. Okay, well, we'll chase that up because it sounds very interesting. Thanks for your comment, Joe. That's terrific. And thanks, everybody, who's, who's uh, found us online after a little bit of a hiccup and is listening in live right now. And thanks to our listeners who are joining us later. That does remind me about something else, though. If you would like a popular uh, introduction to some of the things we've been uh, talking about, not that this means that we would necessarily or that Phil would necessarily agree with every dot of every I and every cross of every T in these books, but a couple of very interesting books, if you've not come across them yet, are Donut Economics mm. by Kate Roweth who, like Phil, is uh, inspired by and endorsed by Herman Daly, the great ecological economist. And another one which is interesting, again, to read is uh, a book by someone from the degrowth movement, Less is More, that Gabby is holding at the moment, by Jason Hickel. There are some very confronting uh, ecological facts mm. which are laid out uh, in, in that book by Jason. Um, Kate is uh, associated with uh, our own Stephanie Kelton and Jason Hickel is very much on the modern monetary theory train and would uh, agree with us that uh, a job guarantee is a good way of maintaining full employment while you transition to ecological sustainability. He's written about that online uh, in the last uh, in the last year or so. So by all means, look those books up and look Phil up online uh, as well. It's a great pleasure to be associated with him in our in our in our venture. Gabby and I are off to a beautiful place called Tasmania 
uh, off, the, off the coast of Australia at the weekend, where we'll be doing our, our Rethinking Capitalism uh, workshop all over again with some uh, lovely people over there. Uh, but uh, hopefully we'll get there and back safely and see you all again this time next week. Thanks very much again, Phil. Yeah, thanks, thanks Phil. No worries. That's great. Thanks, Bye, Mark. everyone. Bye.